This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to this special Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots. I'm James Seal and I'm joined today by Fraser Nelson and Isabel Hardman. Now we've been talking a lot on the podcast this week about migration, the potential ramifications for the government's legacy, but another big policy issue which perhaps is under-discussed at the moment is net zero. And Fraser, you've written a column about it this week. Talk us through your thinking on it and you point out that Rishi Sunak doesn't mention net zero nearly as much as Boris Johnson did. Why is that? I think we're seeing a quiet retreat from the net zero agenda. Rishi Sunak is always known to be very um, sceptical about it. Uh, Not that he's not environmentally minded, he just thought these things need to be um, costed. Uh, Rishi Sunak's creed isn't really conservatism, it's trade-offism. That if you want to do something in politics, you need to be completely upfront about how much it's going to cost and who's going to pay. Now, that kind of bill is arriving in the rest of um, Europe. We've seen Dutch farmers drive their tractors into The Hague to protests. We've seen um, Sweden's got a new 27-year-old environment minister who's been steadily watering down the environmental uh, obligations. Uh, the Germans um, have, of course, have had the shock of the Ukraine war, but they're now um, actually pulling down wind turbines to expand um, coal-fired power plants. Um, and also, I think more significantly, it shows you the pace of change. Just um, five months ago, Germany was backing this EU law to um, rule out the sale of new petrol cars by 2035. Now Germany wants this rule scrapped, as does Italy and and other countries. And this time last week, Emmanuel Macron gave a speech where he was calling on the EU to put a moratorium on green rules. No more, he says, where we're basically we can't take any more regulation. So you can see this trend in continental Europe of, I wouldn't call it, this isn't, this isn't um, Lyndon Crosby style saying green crap. This is not saying environmentalism is wrong. It's just saying that these targets inflict too high a price on the public. Now, this is what Sunak was always worried about. It's all very well to say that you back a net zero Britain. Who wouldn't want that as a sort of goal? But are we going to um, tax poor people out of the sky, off the roads, put up electricity prices? So Sunak is now, I, I think, changing his position. And overall, I think we can see a move away from the kind of more utopian um, targets for dates a long way in the future. Now those dates are not so far in the future. Reality is starting to bite and we can see a new form of environmentalism as a result. Now, Isabel, you wrote a very interesting piece for The Spectator not so long ago talking about how actually uh, Ed Miliband is a hugely important person on Labour's front bench and talk about he, how he, who has the um, you know the energy and the net zero brief, is actually sort of taking up a lot of the kind of you know new money which Labour's priorities are going to, uh, spending plans are going to raise. You know, a lot of the money is going towards furthering their net zero commitments. Uh, talk us, we've discussed briefly with Fraser the, the Tory debate and the kind of uh, government, what they're doing on net zero. But what's Labour's stance on it and how would it change if they were elected next year? Yeah, so Ed Miliband's influence is really interesting. And it's as I wrote in The Spectator a little while ago, it, it was a source of, of real resentment for some shadow cabinet figures and I I felt that was slightly unfair because actually part of it was just that Ed Miliband works really hard and he knows how to you know get his way and I always think that when people start to resent that then 
they're looking in the wrong place. But Ed Miliband is, is definitely not dead wood. Um, and he's a source of a lot of ideas, even if um, a lot of them get dismissed by Keir Starmer um, and co. He's, he's always got more to suggest and um, is, is very thoughtful and hardworking. So his influence so far, we've seen um, the national energy company that Starmer uh, proposed, Great British Energy, at the party's autumn conference. Uh, he was behind uh, the push to say that Labour stood for a fairer, greener future, um, which has uh, rightly been dismissed as sounding a bit like a washing up liquid advert rather than a political party. And he was also pushing for the party to go much further in terms of uh, big investments on, um, on green jobs and green uh, infrastructure. Um, there's a really interesting debate about green jobs, and I think Sunak has picked up on this from Red Wall Conservative MPs, because you did have under Boris Johnson this emphasis on net zero bringing green jobs. But when you talk to the Tory MPs in Red Wall seats, they would say, well, my voters, when I say green jobs, they think it's someone who works for the council in a non-job who wears a lanyard uh, rather than actually the sort of high-tech jobs of the future. And if you rebrand it to being high-tech jobs of the future, which is the sort of language that Rishi Sunak is naturally more comfortable with anyway, another interesting shift in the wider public debate is that you've now got charities like Citizens Advice warning that the cost of net zero will be unaffordable, destructive for people on low incomes. And that, I think, underlines really powerfully what a lot of people in politics have been trying to say, but have been dismissed as being, I don't know, climate change deniers or, you know, Luddites or whatever, uh, is that actually net zero as it is conceived at the moment is going to be extremely difficult for normal people with uh, normal incomes um, in normal homes to absorb um, and uh, currently we're not building new homes in a way uh, that will mean that they meet net zero um, requirements which means we're going to have to retrofit uh, a lot of new homes uh, in the next few years and one of the concerns in the Conservative Party is that, that could be something akin to the uh, the cladding scandal in terms of properties that suddenly turn out not to be worth, uh, worth what they were sold for. And Fraser, you write in your column about you know, the electoral potential of all of this, and you say about Sadiq Khan introducing the ULES charge in London. Do you think there's any kind of political expression of all of this, uh, slight perhaps discontent or scepticism at the ballot box? Because you know, reform have been trying to make this an issue. They were campaigning at one point to have a referendum on net zero, but it doesn't. It does seem it's one of those issues, perhaps like EU membership was for many decades, where simply no mainstream party is going to go towards anything which perhaps questions or criticises the kind of net zero green agenda. That's right. I don't think this is about um, calling out, as it were, the green agenda. I think most um, most of the public are environmentally minded. Most people want to um, tread as lightly on the planet as they can. And it's standard consumer behaviour now to, to do your recycling, to be as responsible as you can how you go about your life. So I don't think there's going to be a backlash, um, nor do I think there's going to be a sort of a Farageist anti-green party. I do think there will be a price paid at people who push it too far. 
For example, Sadiq Khan's coming up for re-election. Now, what are Londoners going to think about his ULEZ um, zone? He says there was a crisis in um, in air quality, but one, of the, but nobody really points out just what's happened to air pollution. I was, I'm actually struck by how much my own kids come back from school being told that there's terrible air and are they going to get ill? Are they going to get asthma? My dad, when he was going into Glasgow, he would basically have detachable collars in his shirt because they would get so grimy during the morning he'd have to change them in the afternoon. Now, I turned um, 50 last weekend, and in my not entirely short lifetime, (laughs) we have still seen just an absolutely staggering reduction in in air pollution. um, Sulfur dioxide is down by something like 97% in my lifetime. The PM 2.5, the particle matter, the PM 10, also down by more than half. In so many ways, the air we breathe now in our, in our cities and in our country is purer than it has been at any time since before the invention of the motor car. You, you don't walk around cities now where they're burning coal or other things to heat their houses. So we are living in a, in a city that is and a, a country that has never been kind of cleaner or greener in living memory. Um, the River Thames, for example, there's now all sorts of fish um, swim in that river. Um, uh, a couple of generations ago, you wouldn't get anything swimming in there. So you, we were somehow managing to breed a generation which is full of eco-anxiety and fearfulness about the future, when in fact the progress which we're making is absolutely stunning. The same is true with our carbon emissions. Our carbon emissions now are the lowest since, I think, 1859. Um, and that, again, when you think about how much the bigger the economy is, is a huge achievement. In the last um, 10, 20 years, our carbon emissions in this country have been faster than any other country in the G20. And even when you include what we import, then it's the second lowest in the G20. So these are all reasons, I would argue, for a huge optimism about what can be done with the potential for renewable energy, the potential for technology to drive all of this change. And this is very much at odds with the Jeremiads of what I call the dark green environmentalists and the Gretas of whatnot saying that we're all doomed. I think there is a bright green alternative. I would place myself on that side of of the divide. Um, But I think what um, Sadiq Khan might find out is that there is an electoral price paid by people who push it too far, who come up with false premises. I mean, our air quality as Londoners has never been cleaner, and it's difficult for him to really deny that. So I think what we're going to see is the tiptoeing away from the more expensive and onerous regulations and a slightly calmer, more sustainable, more deliverable green agenda take its place. Well, thank you for joining us from the outside, Isabel. And uh, thank you for listening to Coffee Hour Shots. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, Isabel. And see you next week.